Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today we're going to be taking a break from the normal Tuesday panel to bring you a conversation about how the world became rich. That's a new book by economic historians Mark Koyama of George Mason and Jared Rubin of Chapman, and it seeks to answer or at least outline some possible answers to one of the hardest questions in all of history, which is why some 200, 250 years ago, did parts of the world start experiencing sustained economic growth for the first time? Why did that take so long? And why did the process begin in England, which as recently as a few hundred years before that was not really a leading country in Europe? Before this process began, uh, human living standards improved slowly, if at all, for thousands of years. Uh, the vast majority of humans lived in what today we might characterize as extreme poverty. And then in a few hundred years, which is just a small blip in the course of human history, that all started to change uh, to where the vast majority of humans have escaped extreme poverty and enjoy lifespans, technologies, and diets, unlike anything their ancestors dreamed could be possible. So I'm excited to have Professors Koyama and Rubin on the weeds today to talk about that transformation and about their book. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Welcome, Dylan. Great to be here. So a central premise in the book and sort of a, a background premise for a lot of economic history is that for most of human history, living standards were improving quite slowly. Explain what that looked like to us. So what, what did the economies of, of, say, the Roman Empire or Han Dynasty China look like? And, and why did that not translate to living standards steadily going up for people who lived in places like that? But yeah, this is uh, the big question, we think, in economic history and economic growth. How do we become rich? And um, the starting point, as you say, is uh, a pre-industrial agrarian societies, which are capable of, you know, relatively high levels of urbanization, there's trade, they're capable of building tremendous buildings. Think about, you know, the Colosseum in Rome or Hagia Sophia or the Taj Mahal. And they're capable of providing luxury goods and wealth for a relatively concentrated, relatively narrow elite. But if we look at the living standards of the median person in these societies, they're, by our standards, extremely poor. So in terms of per capita GDP, think about, depending on which society we're talking about, between 
$500 a year and maybe $1,500. So $500 a year is extreme poverty. It's, it's a little more than a dollar a day. So that's like the poorest people alive today. But a lot of societies would have been a little bit richer than that, but still really poor by, by modern standards. So um, a country on that, with that level of per capita income today, we would consider poor, but by pre-industrial standards, that would be would have, would have been one of the more prosperous of these uh, societies. Uh, think about, you know, medieval Florence or the height of the Roman Empire, perhaps. In terms of what else it means for them to be poor, well, the comparison is always a little bit tricky, right? Because they had access to different goods than we had access to, but they were poor along a, a number of dimensions which really matter for us. So nutritional status would have been bad, and that's revealed in the heights of people's average heights of around kind of, you know, five foot four, five foot five for men in, say, you know, pre-industrial England or um, lower maybe even in, in, say, the Roman Empire. They were poor in the sense their life expectancy was low, life expectancy at birth being below 40 in all of these societies, a lot of that being due to very high levels of infant mortality. And they're poor in terms of a range of consumption goods they can access and the number of consumption goods they can access beyond basic subsistence. So whether or not they have access to varied diet, meat, those types of things. And finally, I would say in terms of you know clothing, people might be in possession of a couple of outfits of clothing, but nothing like from material abundance people have even in relatively modest countries today. The word Malthusian gets used a lot, including in your book, to, to talk about these economies and sort of the dynamics of them. What does that mean? And, and tell us the Malthus story. Thomas Malthus was a clergyman writing in the late 1700s. You know, ironically enough, he, he was an Englishman writing during the Industrial Revolution. And many of his predictions or his, his view of the world would be foiled by the, the fruits of industrialization. But the way he had kind of viewed economies and, and viewed the way that demography works explained the world pretty well up until that point. And I mean, I think the basic way of thinking about it using today's parlance is if you can have one-off events that happen, like a technological transition, you might have a demographic transition like the Black Death killing off a third of the population that temporarily raise incomes. So when that happens, according to what Malthus noted throughout history is over time, if that's not sustained and it never was really, and that's, that really is the transition that we're, that we look at here is the transition to sustained technological progress. But if it's not sustained, eventually people will have more kids because over time, you know, people essentially stop having kids in the Malthusian world as, as you know, we call it and economists call it today when, they are at, at subsistence when they can no longer afford to either feed them or the kids just die in childbirth. As Mark was just saying, this was a very common lot of people uh, throughout world history. And this is all this all kind of goes against the Malthusian logic that had more or less dominated the way we would view demographic and economic change prior to industrialization, prior to the onset of modern economic development. And yeah, the ultimate prediction from the Malthusian model is that most people in the society will re remain around subsistence. Now, there can be a few people, as Mark just noted, you know, in, in ancient societies, there were elites that took most of the extra rents. So, you know, in medieval Europe, you know, it would have been the you know, church as well as, you know, the nobility. But most of society was not doing that much better than subsistence. Um, and when economists and economic historians view world economic development over time, 
the Malthusian model is typically used to, to help us think through how most of the economy worked prior to the 18th and 19th centuries. So how, how full is our knowledge of these economies and, and sort of how prevalent of a Malthusian dynamic was. I imagine we have a lot better data about, say, Rome than we do about what life in what is today Argentina or South Africa would have been like around the year zero or, or 100 AD. How full is our, our knowledge about where this dynamic prevailed? That's a great question. And um, that's actually a very important feature of what we're trying to do in the book. So it's important that we emphasize that we're not, in some sense, advancing our own novel, super original ideas when we talk about things like the Malthusian trap. What we're doing is we're summarizing a body of work which has been produced by dozens, if not more, economic historians in the last, let's say, 30 years. So um, some of this work has been theoretical. So Ode Galore has been the pioneer of this Malthusian theory and also um, has found evidence for this Malthusian dynamic. But a lot of the work has been done by um, empirically orientated economic historians collecting um, different measures of, of living standards. So real wages can be constructed if you if you find some evidence of how much someone in the past has been paid in terms of nominal wages, and then you can construct an estimate of their basket of consumption goods, and you know roughly the price of these goods, then you can construct a, a measure of real wages. So, you know, we're talking about, I want to say hundreds at least, papers putting together this body of knowledge, which we're really summarizing in, a, in an accessible form. But you're exactly right, but we know more about some societies than others. Uh, what I would say is we know a lot more than we did 30 years ago. So Angus Madison, some listeners may have heard of him, was a pioneering scholar of historical GDP statistics. But as many economic historians have noted, many of his uh, observations were kind of made up, at least for the earlier period. But those estimates have now been filled in to a large degree for more and more countries. So we don't know much about pre-conquest America. Charles Mann has some great books about it. But pre-conquest America is something where I think the knowledge is somewhat sketchy, and I think things could be subject to revision. But there, we still think the logic of this Malthusian economy is going to hold. There's no reason to think otherwise. They, these were still governed by these laws of pre-industrial societies, but we have less information there. But somewhere like China or now uh, Japan, those are countries where 20 years ago, economic historians and economists were really guessing. And now they're not guessing. So we do know a lot more about the dynamics of these societies, and they do conform to the broad outline that um, Jared and I summarize in the book. One point you make in the book that I found particularly interesting is that sustained economic growth of the kind that you're trying to explain in the book isn't the same thing as just trade, that we've had trade for thousands of years, going back to the Phoenicians, and, and before that, uh, you had the Silk Road, you had, uh, I know Jared has written a lot about trade in the Muslim world and, and exchanges between Europe and various caliphates. Why didn't that kind of commerce, including commerce that sort of span continents and, and travel very great distances, lead to the kind of growth that you're interested in explaining? It's not that it trade's unimportant. You, know, you can have growth based on trade. So some of these societies that you asked about earlier on, you know, say the Romans or you know, the Song Chinese, you know, the, there, there was a lot of trade and, and trade certainly was important for relatively high levels of uh, economic development. By relatively high, though, again, we still mean what we would consider very poor by today's standards on a per capita basis. Ultimately, there are limits to what that can do. 
So this is part of the broader um, set of what we would call Smithian growth. So uh, named after Adam Smith, where societies that either build based on specialization and economies of scale, you know, they get bigger by becoming bigger, becoming more efficient, and then they can they can gain some type of what we now call comparative advantage and use that to trade. That is a source of growth. And this is not to say that um, a society that is trading a lot will be poorer off than one that's not, but that that also runs into to limitations. And the idea that has been really influential in the last, say, 30, 40 years when looking at these questions is that you can look at various sources of growth and they're all dwarfed by the growth that is unleashed by technological change and really, what more importantly, persistent technological change. This is how one, I think, could describe the period of industrialization. And then even, you know, and it's not just at Britain's industrialization in the late 18th century, it, the, the entirety of the 19th century, which is actually where the takeoff economically really happens, is one of immense technological change that infiltrates every aspect of the economy. And then we, we would also say it's complementary to the very types of things you're describing here. So when you get the, the advanced technological change that really has economic implications in part because of trade, because the different countries can then even go further into specialization of different either, whether it be inve inventive activities or the fruits of those inventive activities and grow their economies. Uh, but in the end, to answer the question, how did the world become rich? You really need to then answer, how did the world become technologically progressive? That that gets to some uh, sort of a distinction I wanted to make clear and that you make clear in the book that I think some accounts of the European growth takeoff sometimes kind of conflate it with like a triumph of the West narrative where it gets sort of combined with trying to explain why it was Europe that colonized the Western Hemisphere and, and later Africa rather than the other way around, or why sort of Western values triumphed. And, and this sort of in, in 19th and early 20th century writing often took a sort of charitably chauvinist, less charitably racist form. <laughs> and I at least read your book as, as pushing back against that and, and sort of emphasizing how contingent a lot of what happened was and how specific the story around economic growth is. But I, I, I'd be curious to hear how you guys think about how it fits with books and, and sort of stories that take a more expansive look and try to explain the growth takeoff and colonization as as both coming from this uh, inherent European greatness. Many books aimed at a more popular audience, perhaps, as opposed to narrowing economic audience. And I, and I have to First and foremost, say that me and Jared are probably not free from this bias either. We we obviously have our own uh, our own biases. Of course, but everybody is in some sense, especially as you write a more popular book, you're writing for the present moment, to some degree, even if you're trying not to, and you have things on your mind. So I think it's inescapable that those views leak into how one selects or chooses how to write one's history. So that's true whether or not you're writing a triumphalist why the West grew rich, why the West conquered the world narrative. Or if you're doing the opposite, you're saying how Britain impoverished India or how the West exploited and destroyed, you know, other parts of the world. And so, at least from my perspective, I've read those books and many of you think they could be great reads and they could speak to you precisely because they are motivated by the current political moment. They're not necessarily good economic history or good history. 
So at least in, from my angle, uh, writing this book, I, I didn't want us to be doing that. I guess in some sense, the, the present thing which is motivating me is I think the, the need for understanding economic growth and the fact that economic growth is often undervalued in the political moment, in the current moment. And so that, that's kind of like where I'm coming from in terms of my biases. Now, um, given where I, I'm coming from, obviously, it's clearly the case that the history we're telling is characterized by you know, mass violence and enslavement. And so we document that and we think that's had a negative impact on many parts of the world going forward. And that's a statement built on, again, a lot of recent evidence and research in economic history. But we don't necessarily think that the colonization and exploitation story of a military rise of the West and the economic rise are necessarily caused always by the same thing. So I think one of the possible mistakes in some of the earlier literature is to conflate the economic and military rise of the West with both the economic rise and also uh, with some kind of moral supremacy. So if you think about past empires, uh, there are many empires in history and they've exploited and killed and massacred and enslaved people. Yet that hasn't been correlated or associated with rapid growth. And it's certainly not been associated with any kind of moral supremacy or superiority. So I'm, we definitely disavow those early approaches. But we also think that the story of, of, of a colonial economy, it's linked with what's happening in industrial revolution. And undoubtedly, it's linked. There are things like the sugar industry, which is built off the back of slavery. But at the same time, what makes the British Industrial Revolution special from our perspective are things happening in the north of England, the rapid pace of innovation, the continuous improvement of, of the machines involved in the cotton textile industry, the ingenuity of the workforce. And those things are somewhat orthogonal to whether or not Robert Clive in India is, is conquering an empire for himself and looting Bengal or other developments there. So our, our book covers that. But it, when we talk about the origins of growth, we're really focusing on the rise of an innovative economy in the 17th and 18th century, in firstly Europe and then, then Britain, and then it spread its diffusion across the world, as opposed to the military rise of, of Western powers. On that note, uh, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the Industrial Revolution and what was happening in the north of England and why that wound up changing everything. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. 
Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. And we're back. So after that very condensed overview of thousands of years of economic history, it's time to talk about the last few hundred years of economic history and, and about the Industrial Revolution and the, the origins of modern growth. I think, Jared, you, you mentioned something a, a moment ago about how the real growth takeoff started in the 19th century. And so I wanted to to see if we could pinpoint when exactly we're talking about, since I, I sometimes read books on the, the growth takeoff and the Industrial Revolution that start talking about things happening during the civil wars of the mid-17th century. Uh, then you start hearing about mills and things in the mid-18th century. Um, and then you start seeing sort of living standards across Britain really change in the 19th century. Obviously, they're, they're, this is a very gradual, multi-stage process. But is there a moment that you you two think of as as the, the real break that you're trying to explain? Or are you just trying to explain that gradual process more more generally? One thing we really try to do in this book is to say industrialization begins in the latter half of the 18th century in Britain, but why? <laughs> why then and why there? And to answer this question, this is where we, we draw on this literature that's been growing in various forms in the last you know, 20, 30 years. So, you know, you mentioned the, the 17th century Britain, you know, you have the civil wars, the glorious revolution. There were massive institutional changes that I think you could even draw back prior to that ended up where this is something that was by no means deterministic that it would end up this way, that Britain was going to be this place with, you know, relatively limited government where, you know, the rights of the people via parliament were relatively secure there were a bunch of events that could have taken Britain on a different path, but that's why the 17th century is viewed as it's kind of key because this is where some of these rights ended up being secured. And so Joel Moyker has been recently working on some stuff that I find somewhat convincing on the skilled workforce that Britain had for a variety of reasons. It was engaged in trade, of course, especially after the Atlantic opened. One key point I think the book makes that, yeah, uh, other economic historians know, but when you know when when writing, they really focus on one thing. I don't, none of these are silver bullets. In fact, there is no silver bullet that that got England over the hump or Britain over the hump. It was the combination and the confluence of these things at one point in time in one place that allowed for takeoff. So now to your question on the takeoff, it kind of depends on what you're talking about because you know per capita GDP is different from wage. So per capita GDP can rise while going mainly towards the, the, the top part of the distribution, whereas wages often are going to be slower to catch up. So wages really start to rise, real wages start to rise only in about the, the, the mid-19th century. That's quite a bit after 
per capita GDP really starts to rise to a point where England becomes the wealthiest country in the world, probably in you know very late 18th or early 19th centuries. Um, but once that wage takeoff happens, it really starts to shoot up where the fruits of what was industrialization. And then, you know, it's by, by, the, by this time, by the time you're talking mid 19th century, it's hardly only Britain that is industrializing. That's, it's spread to the U.S. It is spread through uh, different parts of Western Europe. Uh, pretty soon thereafter, it's even going to spread to Japan. Uh, so the fruits of industrialization are starting to spread around the world, but also within Britain, it's starting to spread to every, well, most people, where you actually see you know, people moving. The, the average person now is, is well, well away from subsistence, even though there are other aspects of their life that, of course, maybe not be, may not be the greatest. You know, London's still fairly polluted place and, you know, life expectancy within the cities is not always as great as it is in the countryside. But still, there are a lot in life. There's a reason that people are moving to these, not just London, but, you know, the industrial cities in the north in particular, you know, like Manchester, Liverpool, places like that, that their their quality of life in terms of, well, well I should say their, their real wage, at least, is much higher than it would have been for the average person not that long before. And this is something then now that economic historians have been starting to document elsewhere as well. And this is where, you know, especially in a place like the U.S., which is becoming becoming wealthier for, for a number of other reasons, not just industrialization, uh, that we start to see a rise in this period as well. And Mark, you, you were mentioning this before the break, but this process is happening sort of a a couple hundred years after or in the midst of some other really enormous processes. And one of those is is the colonization of the Western Hemisphere, the rise of the transatlantic slave trade to provide labor to colonialists in the Western Hemisphere. And as you said, there were kind of the triumphalist theories we were talking about earlier, but there are also theories starting with sort of Eric Williams's book, Capitalism and Slavery, more recently with some books on the Industrial Revolution um, by people like Sven Becker that give that a really heavy role in, in explaining what was happening in England, that you you needed either resources from the, the New World to fuel the growth, or you needed cotton plantations providing cotton to mills in Manchester and Liverpool. Um, you go into some detail in the book about what what makes sense and what doesn't make sense about some of these theories. Walk us through that and and what we do know about the relationship between sort of the, the start of the Industrial Revolution and those those kinds of processes of exploitation. These are hard questions. So first and foremost, because they're, they're causal questions and we don't have the opportunity to run experiments here. So we can't rerun history and make slavery illegal in 1500 and see what happens. So so we can't answer these with the credibility that we would have <laughs> if we had, had you know, experimental evidence. So, and we're always dealing with, 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 with kind of factuals. And we also have to think in terms of what conditions were necessary and which were uh, sufficient. And so it's definitely true that the, the history which we observe Particularly uh, Britain, uh, but also the other 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 European countries were deeply implicated in transatlantic slave trade and the trading networks which uh, emerged around the, the Caribbean, the sugar nexus that Eric Williams focuses on, and um, other patterns of colonial trade which were largely based on on coerced labour. And there, obviously, you know, we we know how horrific. That those voyages were and how horrific the conditions were in the plantations, particularly in the Caribbean, worse in many ways than the 
we know less about them because less, less fewer records have survived. But in some sense, worse than the plantation slavery you saw in the 19th century US, like survival rates of slaves were even lower. So it's definitely something which is mor- morally uh, deplorable and um, uh, and that we can condemn. But the question is, is, was it necessary for the Industrial Revolution? The answer to that question depends on how you conceive the Industrial Revolution. If you conceive the Industrial Revolution along the lines you were suggesting earlier, as a process of like trade and intensifying these trading networks, then it seems very logical to then think that this expansion of, of, of trade into the colonies, the supply of, of, of raw, raw materials um, was decisive. Now, it definitely mattered. So the fact that you're getting sugar coming in from the Caribbean Sugar enters British diets, and there's a whole kind of mini literature about how it changes consumption patterns. People start drinking sugar with their tea. They stop drinking so much beer. Uh, some people have argued that contributes to this greater industriousness that we observe in the 18th century. So we would definitely acknowledge that this expansion of this network of trade matters. It affects the British economy in certain ways. The question is: is how important was that for for the Industrial Revolution itself? And if we take the trade-based view, it's, it might be important. If we take a more innovation-based perspective, if we look at what patterns people are coming up with, what problems are the innovators trying to solve when they're uh, devising things like you know the, the water frame or the spinning jenny or thinking about how to harness steam power or how to make use of coal deposits, then this colonial trading nexus becomes less important. It, it kind of fades from being essential um, in, in, in our view. So you're left with indirect links. The colonial economy made a lot of people, particularly in places like Bristol and London, very, very rich. Um, they built big mansions and beautified their, their local towns. How much of that money went to industrializing uh, entrepreneurs of the North? Well, it seems like not very much of it because the financial system wasn't that integrated. And so Scholars can debate this, and I mean, there's good evidence that slavery and colonial trade matter at the margin. They contribute to the rise of some cities. I mentioned Bristol, uh, Liverpool as well, potentially. But whether or not it was the key thing that we want to hang our hat on as responsible for this uptick in innovation and entrepreneurial activity, at least to me, it doesn't seem like it was. And attempts to connect these things too strongly lack compelling evidence. So, that, that's kind of my position on this right now. And I, I think that it's it's pretty solid view that the Industrial Revolution and the innovative economy we see in the 18th century and 19th century England was something special. And the story of colonial exploitation was something which we've seen before, the Romans, the Ottomans, the Chinese. And so that's why I'm less inclined to see it as central to the to the great enrichment or the takeoff. And it's also interesting to me, and you, you make this point in your book, but that some of the earliest colonialists, the, the Spanish Empire in particular, didn't really become rich long term because of that, that in, in some ways it, it led to a lot of dysfunctions for them. Uh, when Mark was talking about this, I had Spain kept popping up in my mind, too, right? Because you have this the Spanish who are as if, if actually not more engaged in the slave trade as, you know, the Portuguese are as well. Spain was lacking certainly on one big front, and that was limited governance. So in the the course of the 16th and 17th centuries, Spain became more autocratic, if anything else. Part of this was, especially early on, was funded by all this wealth coming from the New World. So when the king is able to take a fifth of the gold that's coming on the ships that are landing in the harbors of Spain, he doesn't need to... To listen to others, really, he doesn't need to go to his Cortes, you know, his parliaments, 
and ask for their permission for things in order to to rule. He doesn't need to give them rights. And you know what, what ends up happening in England at this time is that you know there's not access to this. There's a bunch of contingent things that do happen. To be clear, yeah, we we could go into the history, especially in 16th and 17th century England, that eventually bubble over into warfare between Parliament and the Crown. But a lot of what what this warfare is about is about the rights of Parliament of, of property holders things like this. And eventually they do win some of these rights, at least for some of the elites. But eventually this does trickle down to the rest of society. And this is one of these things, again, you know, as I noted before, this isn't a silver bullet for England, as, as actually some have claimed that once you get the glorious revolution, you know, you get everything that is glorious after that in England as well, because now Parliament's supreme and everything, everything is just dandy after that. The thing that I think we view it as is that it's something that was necessary probably to, for to, for the takeoff in England. And it's actually a much better explainer of why takeoff didn't happen elsewhere. So you have places like, you know, Song China, for instance, that were also you know, somewhat autocratic, but also wealthy. So, you know, Song China is kind of the peak of Chinese economic development prior to probably the 20th century, not even, you know, not even the 19th century, probably the 20th century, the average person was probably wealthier, you know, and there's more evidence that Mark was highlighting earlier coming out that does suggest that this was the case. Yeah, in Song China, we're talking about like 10th century here. So, you know, a, a millennium ago, the average Chinese was probably wealthier than the average Chinese in the early 20th century, you know, pre, pre even World War II, probably. But uh, again, the reason that you don't have a takeoff there, you know, there's, there's many, um, but I think a big one is the type of governance and really the type of constraints on governance. So, so we do view this, you know, and, and we fall. There's a very, very large literature in economics. Some of it's what's, which has become, you know, quite popularized. You know, like why nations fail, Asimov and Robinson's book that that really focuses on this type of these types of institutions as being central to economic development. We don't deny that that's that that's true, but whether it's sufficient, it is a different story. And that's where, you know, going back to the, you know, your original question with, of Spain, that's something that Spain definitely did not have in this period, even though you know, if you if you put somebody down in Europe in the year 1500 and said one of these places is going to have a massive takeoff 250 years later, Spain would not have been a bad guess. You know, frankly, even maybe around 1550, you know, 200 years later, not still not a bad guess. Northern Italy not a bad guess. Frankly, even the Ottoman Empire, which by this by this point, you know, they're based out of Istanbul, but is a European empire as well. So most of southeastern Europe was Ottoman by this point. Also also not a bad guess. The problem with at least with the Ottomans and the Spanish was precisely this that that they were, you know, highly autocratically run. There's a whole host of different issues that were happening in northern Italy that eventually and eventually these places, you know, southern Europe falls well behind. So as late as the 19th century, even the leading parts of Southern Europe are actually closer wealth-wise to, say, East Asia than they are the wealthiest parts of Northwestern Europe. Uh, so there's there's not just you know divergence that we in this literature tries to explain between, say, Northwestern Europe, not just Britain, but you know the Netherlands and eventually you know Belgium and it catches up and parts of you know Northern Germany catch up. Um, and the rest, the rest of the world. It's also there's a massive divergence within Europe, which also can be explained by these same factors. Well, and, and beyond colonialism, another sort of 
process that's happening around this time that that often gets included in stories of the Industrial Revolution is the Scientific Revolution. So in England, you had Newton, Hugh Cavendish, Joseph Priestley. You had similar invaders uh, in, in continental Europe. And there's sort of an intuitive story there, right? That you have people doing science and doing science at a, a different scale and with maybe less sort of religious constraint on them than they had before. That leads to technologies, that leads to growth. And that's definitely part of the story you're telling, but it's it's a little more complicated than that sort of simple step-by-step I just laid out. Um, so how do you view the relationship between the Industrial Revolution and the, the Scientific Revolution? Here we're very much, I think, indebted to the story told by Joel McKeer in his book, Culture of Growth. So the, the Scientific Revolution is clearly a background condition. But the link between the types of things that Descartes is doing or even Leibniz are doing and the types of things happening in kind of Manchester 100 years later is quite quite remote, right? It's quite distinct. The scientific revolution is, I think, a precondition for the modern transformation of the economy that we eventually observe. That's, that's the first thing. However, the link between it and the Industrial Revolution has always been contested. And that's for um, several reasons. One, the scientific revolution, as you know, really is, is not centered especially in England. England's important in it, like Newton, uh, Robert Boyle, others. But there, you know, Galileo is based in, in Italy. You have people like Huygens in, in the Netherlands, Leibniz in Germany. So there are lots of European scholars contributing to it. Yeah, the Industrial Revolution itself, the, the mechanization of the textiles industry, the application of steam technology to industrial problems is this uniquely kind of British thing. And so if the scientific revolution led inexorably to the Industrial Revolution, then it would have been a pan-European development, and it wasn't. The other point is that none of the initial breakthroughs in the Industrial Revolution, with the exception of a steam engine, could be linked concretely to some invention in the Scientific Revolution. So the steam engine does rely on, on Boyle and von Papin's uh, discovery of the possibility of a vacuum. But even the steam engine, there's a lot of, there are a lot of intermediate processes between the scientific discovery that, that a vacuum is possible, which is contrary to Aristotelian kind of uh, scholastic science, and, and the actual kind of engine that Thomas Newcomb comes up with, let alone uh, Watts' steam engine, which is the, the steam engine which becomes very important in, a, in the actual application of, uh, of, of steam engines to, to industry. So um, Joel McKeer argues that the, what he calls the Industrial Enlightenment or what was the key link between the scientific revolution and the Industrial Revolution. So in particular, it was important not just for uh, lone scientists be coming up with breakthroughs, but these breakthroughs had to be translated into concrete propositions to improve the world. So he talks about Roger Bacon and the Baconian uh, program to use knowledge for the human betterment. And that takes off, it develops in England more than elsewhere uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which are institutional. So the Royal Society, the emergence of academic journals, the emergence of coffee houses and societies where tradesmen and, and mechanics might interact to some degree with scientists. And so this enlightened culture is, is important for the diffu- diffusion of, of, of some scientific principles. Uh, so that's one way in which the scientific revolution matters. The other way is in the 19th century. So as I said, the initial Industrial Revolution technological breakthroughs are not that dependent on earlier scientific breakthroughs. But that's not true of the Second Industrial Revolution. So things like the, the internal combustion engine 
or chemical fertilizers. So um, in the 1850s, 1860s, innovators in, in Germany and the United States really make important breakthroughs in chemical fertilizers. That would not have been possible without earlier scientific breakthroughs. So the fact that these innovations don't peter out, you don't get a burst of innovations and then a period of stagnation. The fact that innovation continues to diffuse does seem to rest indirectly, perhaps, on the earlier scientific revolution. And, I, and, and that's McKeer's story, and I think both me and Jared are very happy with it as being pretty important to the process we're describing. I did want to be sure to talk a little bit more about institutions, because those are a really important part of the story you're telling. And the fact that England was a parliamentary system that had recently had vicious civil wars and then a, a coup premised on, on parliamentary sovereignty and, and parliamentary supremacy seems important to to it becoming the place where this broke out. What role did that play and, and sort of why were institutions in England able to produce that, but, but not elsewhere? You know, to some extent, it wasn't completely unique to England in that the Dutch had something very similar in that it may be even in a sense, you know, when we think about it, implications for economic growth better in that they didn't even really have a king or a, a, a monarch. They had a very weak central authority and they were largely run by parliament, at least after uh, they threw off the Spanish yoke in the late 16th century. So again, it was, I wouldn't say it was necessarily unique to England and, you know, what eventually became Britain, but it was pretty close And that most of the world at this point was and really for most of the world history had some degree of autocratic governance. So we, st I would still, you know, most monarchies were largely autocratic. We're not just talking about dictators here. What happened uh, in this period, which we, we do view as really important. We have an entire chapter on institutions, especially since, you know, Douglas North, who won the, the Nobel Prize in the early 90s for his work on institutions, since really since his work has brought institutions back into economics, there's been a large literature that has looked at the role that they have played on shaping the incentives that people face in their day-to-day -day lives. He called it the rules of the game so that, you know, th that we think about things that are particularly important, like property rights, knowing that, you know, that you will get, be able to invest and then reap the benefits of those investments without the state or others infringing on those rights. That's something that uh, he and others have been really pushing. You know, I mentioned before Asma Lou Robinson and Simon Johnson, their other uh, frequent co-author, have pushed similar stories. And we largely agree with, with these stories as being incredibly important. I would at least argue that some of these institutional changes that happened in England began in the, the 16th century under the Tudors, you know, famously under Henry VIII, uh, ultimately under Elizabeth as well. So after after the Reformation, you get this massive movement away from the church being really important in, in governance and Henry VIII, and actually his father, even more so Henry VII, who had this really shaky claim to the throne, has to turn to somebody to prop them up. And they really end up relying on parliament to pass laws in, in a way that previous kings had not. And these are the types of things that a lot of economists, ourselves included, think of as really important for encouraging innovation. Encouraging other things like we, we talked about before, like trade and investment and capital, which are important for economic development. But again, it's it's really the innovation side that's important. And so when we're discussing this, one thing to be clear on, because when I teach this to my students in particular, when we talk about property rights and innovation, they're like, oh, the, the patent system must have been the key thing driving this. And that that really wasn't the case. You know, there were people that had patents, like you know, James Watt's probably most famous 
person of the the industrial revolution and really what he did is he spent most of his time you know protecting his patent <laughs> so that is that is one case of actually um something that many view as technologically damaging because as soon as his patent expires you get a bunch of of new innovations on the steam engine but even then many of the inventions of the industrial revolution actually aren't either aren't protected by patents or you know there's plenty of reason to believe would have been would have been done without patents anyway so it's not necessarily that type of property right but it is the the type that there's no infringement by the state on those that do not have political power because uh, often what you see here too is that in industrial england it's not really the elites who are rising in this period it's not necessarily the poor either it's not you know a horatio alger story where it's you know people being brought up by their bootstraps it's people that are engaged in industry to begin with and then there's either an invention that they themselves make or it's an invention that they're able to kind of exploit to to really become something that was fundamentally different in uh, world economic history. And I think these these are the types of things where institutions that have some type of basic protections, but also, you know, this is also a period where in England you, you have, or Britain by this point, you have massive investment in infrastructure as well, which is something that you don't get in a lot of other places where parliaments or other groups that have interest in these types of things have power. So, you know, the canal system expanding, you have turnpike systems expanding. Eventually you have the rail system that comes about that in most other places, even though this t- these types of technologies were known, it's much slower to develop. With the one exception, as just noted, is the Dutch Republic, which gets a lot of these things. And they get a lot of the good things associated with, you know, what we call relatively limited governance. That just means you know, that, that the central power is limited. But they don't have all of those key things that we've discussed before, which is why the takeoff does not happen there. We're going to take one more break. uh, But when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about uh, what the history of economic growth means for the future of economic growth. So stay with us. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
All right, we're back. So before the break, we were, were talking about some leading explanations and, and theories behind the rise of economic growth. We have had sustained economic growth for the last few hundred years. Um, and I wanted to ask how this has changed, how you think about economic growth in the future. That were, Are there things about the story that you you told and that you learned about how economic growth started that, that yield lessons for what we ought to do going forward to preserve it? The default wisdom, I think, amongst many economists when I was um, kind of like starting to study economics was that we had entered in some deterministic sense a modern growth regime whereby an advanced economy like the United States would grow at roughly 2 to 3% per year. And that was almost like on autopilot. So if you look at the, the rate of growth in the United States from when we have good quality data, 1870 to kind of 2000, it, with the exception of the Great Depression, which was a, it does show up as a big shock. America did ex- enjoy kind of 2% a year growth. And that over time really adds up to really quite dramatic increases in the standard of living. So I had this sense, I think, that a modern uh, capitalist economy like like America could sustain that type of growth just, you know, almost of its own accord. But I, 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 my current view is actually more pessimistic. So looking at kind of more recent data, it does seem that since maybe the late 90s in the US, some countries since the financial crisis of 2010, these underlying growth numbers do seem uh, less optimistic. And so there, there are several possible reasons for this. One is this, the idea of a great stagnation, uh, Tyler Cowen, or a slowdown in a number of scientific ideas. Or there's a view that our politics have got worse, right? We can't do stuff anymore. We can't build things anymore. We can't do infrastructure or whatever it is. Something has gone somewhat wrong in, in the process, which is leading to stagnation. And um, we think the book does a great job of summarizing the, sta- the state of the frontier in terms of our knowledge about the causes of economic growth historically. But we, even we don't fully understand what happens in the 18th century in England, whereby Parliament becomes less less focused on zero-sum conflicts and more amenable to, to, to investments which are going to improve growth. So more amenable to, to things which are going to benefit the whole economy as opposed to lobbying for higher tariffs on imported contextiles. So even we don't quite know why these things ebb and flow. Um, I'm not a pessimist in the sense that I don't think that there's something fixed, which means that scientific progress has slowed down. But I do think it's not necessarily an automatic thing we could take for granted that there's going to be a rate of growth in the United States and therefore we can you know, run up big budget deficits or plan our, our spending on the assumption that growth will be 2 to 3%. I think that, that that growth requires institutional reform. But I think the context is always going to be different. So the institutional reform that worked in, the, in England in the 18th century, 19th century, isn't going to be the institutional reform we need to do today. We're going to need to do something different. Uh, we're going to need to do something different given the different technologies we have, the different kind of levels of economic growth we're already at. But one thing I should add is that we also benefited in the 20th century from some, some developments which are plausibly one-off. So the accumulation of, of human capital in the form of formal schooling you know, which saw massive increase in, in formal education in the 20th century, about half the population going to some form of higher education. That's not going to happen again. Similarly, uh, women entering the workforce post-World War II was a big boost to measured economic activity. Um, but we're not going to get that, that boost again, necessarily. So um, 
I think that there's a lot to be done policy-wise for thinking about how to improve the supply side of the economy in a way that's going to make rapid rates of growth possible. Yeah, maybe I can add something to this too, that I think that the, the kind of flip side to what Mark's talking about is how the lessons that we've learned from the rise of the the modern economy in both Britain and then you know parts of Western Europe and the you know, the U.S. how that might be spread to the rest of the world. Um, and one thing that I think that we certainly both agree on because it's central to this book is that there's kind of a, a confluence of say especially institutions that we've been talking about here in culture that the type of institutional developments are both reflective of culture and help shape the culture of a society and. and and I think to be very clear, we don't mean this kind of Eurocentric notion of culture that you were talking about before, where, you know, it's European, has you have this better culture, and that's why they're better off. It's, you know, the way that, you know, it's it's type of things that's like cultural norms, how how much we trust each other, things like this, that, and you know, I think really importantly, when you think about the relationship to, say, institutions and stuff like democratic norms, you know, so... We shouldn't necessarily expect things like democracies to just be able to be spread to the rest of the world in societies that have few norms for approving of, say, democratically elected leaders, things like this. And, and in this case, you know, the, I think the the uh, the implications are a bit mixed in that we we know some of the things that have been have been important in certain contexts in the past. We have a pretty good idea. You know, I, I agree with Mark. You know, we we still there's still a lot we don't know. But we have a pretty good idea for some of the things that were important. But then on the other hand, we say limited governance was really important in Britain. But, you know, the the place that's seen by far the most economic growth in the last 40 years is China, a place that definitely does not have limited governance by any measure. Now, you know, China's obviously playing a very different game than Britain was. The type of economic growth that happens now, especially from, from countries that begin at a very low level, is largely done, the, or the, the, the most rapid growth is going to be done by borrowing. You, know, you borrow from the frontier until eventually you become the frontier. Now, the question in a place like China is if, if it can become the frontier, you know, it's, it's still lagging well behind the world leaders in types of per capita income, even though, you know, the Chinese success story is, you know, obviously one of the most important aspects of how the world has become rich. I mean, and, you know, we, we mentioned this in the last chapter as an, you know, as an aside here that this is in almost every respect when we think about how the world has become rich, you know, just the Chinese story of the last 40 years, you know, you're talking about a billion people that have been lifted out of the most dire of poverty. That's you know, much more than what's happening, obviously, in Britain or the, even the U.S. Uh, but this, the story is is different in this case. And I think the story for lifting, if, if you want to say, well, how do we get you know the, the poorest people in the world in parts of like South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa out of poverty? Some of the lessons from this book, are, I think, are very clearly, clearly important whether it be you know, certain types of maybe some types of protections for uh, economic, you know, for property rights, things like this. And, and in fact, you know, China doesn't just take off as a autocratic state. You know, it, it takes off really after it has market reforms. There are things we can say that are important, perhaps even within a, a state that we might think has, you know, quote unquote, bad institutions for the type of economic development we've seen in the past. But our, our in, I think the insights from the past you know, you have to take some of the things, and, and this is, again, what we noted before, there are no silver bullets. Some of the things that we, we know, the things that happen in a very specific context in Britain, some of those things cannot be transported to other parts of the world. I mean, whether it be, you know, it's, it's place within an Atlantic, 
you know, an Atlantic economy that was booming in the 18th century, or, you know, a specific type of cultural attributes. Now, certainly there are in institutional attributes that we know might be important. There might be, you know, the, eventually there was a demographic transition that happened actually later in Britain, but happened in um, Europe that was quite important where people started having fewer kids, you know, families became smaller, and that can be an impediment. You know, so we know, we know, for instance, sub-Saharan Africa is going to grow by almost every projection immensely over the next 40 to 50 years. And there are some, I mean, I, th I think reasonable thoughts that, that that will play a role in perhaps slowing economic growth in the region until, but, but again, there's whether that's a policy related thing or just something that might happen more naturally is some some level of economic growth happens we do see often you know people of our families eventually then do have fewer children so when we've been asked about this before there's no i think overly satisfying answer because you know i've used this term now a few times there is no silver bullet we can't say that if you do x you will get good results this is where as historians or economic historians in particular, we, we both think, you know, context really matters. You have to understand this, this, the certain aspects of societies and then say, well, what lessons can we take from either the history of that society or perhaps the history of societies with similar attributes and apply them, apply them here. One theory that we didn't talk about earlier, but that strikes me as maybe having some significance for the future is the theory that that higher wages played a big role in the industrial revolution this is something that the historian robert allen has argued a, a few times you you seem to find some of that compelling in the book and I'm, I'm curious if you see it as having any lessons for the future that trying to sustain economies with high wages where there's incentives to come up with labor saving technologies might be really good for growth in the long run so Bob Allen makes the argument that, um, that the type of innovation you see in the Industrial Revolution England was, was biased towards labour-saving technologies. So the, these um, innovations might be using fuel or coal intensely, but they're, 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 they're saving on workers. And the argument is that there's an incentive to, to, to economise on labour if wages are high relative to the price of both capital, because that, that, what, that's what determines the price of the machines if you're borrowing to invest in them, and also energy. And so I think there's evidence that labour bias technological change happens. I, I'm kind of, I think that's true. There's some pushback about how strong the argument is for industrial revolution in England. So some scholars have argued that the wage rates were not necessarily as high as one might think. Uh, John McKeer and Colfer's Comac uh, Agrada and Morgan Kelly argue that what matters is not actually the nominal wage rate you pay, but the, the labour cost. And labour cost has to take into account the, the, the value you're getting from a worker. And so he, they argue that when you take into account the quality of British workers, the wages for British workers were not that much higher than for, for French workers. So there's been some pushback in the econ literature, econ history literature on that. And there's a, there's a um, conceptual point that critics have also made, which is to say that it's not always the case that you want to economise on the most expensive factor. Sometimes you just want to maximise profits, which might mean economising on all factors. So the conditions under which technology is labor saving because of high wages are, are, are there's some specific kind of assumptions you need in a model for this to work out and those assumptions might or might not play out in the actual economy um so that's what, what one area of concern with that thesis even though i think i i agree with alan in the sense that there were they do seem to have been labor saving those devices 
In terms of a deep explanation of the Industrial Revolution, it kind of pushes back the puzzle a little bit, right? Because why does Britain have this particular wage structure? Why are interest rates low? Why is coal cheap? And then you get to kind of institutions and geography. Now, when you come to the modern economy, I'm from the UK originally, and actually the idea that you could switch the UK into a high-wage uh, equilibrium has been has been common in policy circles in the UK since around 2015. That's when uh, George Osborne started ra- raising the minimum wage. And uh, Brexit has been justified in those terms because with Brexit, you get rid of these cheap workers from Eastern Europe and you can you can uh, switch to a higher wage equilibrium. And I, I feel that the results of this so far have been kind of deeply unsatisfactory. You've just generated a lot of vacancies, and a lot of shortages. And so um, there might be a difference between an endogenous response to uh, a market phenomena of high wages and trying to induce it artificially with various policy levers, which is... Uh, not something I, I would I would uh, recommend, at least without much better evidence than we currently have. Yeah, I just briefly want to add to that. If we want to think about, say, policies for getting the developing world to to become wealthy, on the one hand, you could say, well, just have higher. If they had higher wages, they'd be better off. That this raises the exact question Mark brings up with respect to industrializing Britain. Well. How do you get high wages in the first place? Because once you get those high wages, you're already on the path for probably other reasons, whether they be institutional or you know, whatever. Um, and secondly, yeah, policies that just kind of artificially impose high wages that aren't necessarily you know kind of market based in the sense of you know whether they be kind of more artificial, like you know, imposing some minimum wage. Certainly, in the 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 poorest parts of the world are almost certainly doomed to fail and not and unlikely to encourage the response of, uh, all right, we're just going to start importing technology to re- you know, either replace labor or make, make this labor much more efficient uh, because there's all of these other things associated with it, including stuff like, you know, Mark was mentioning education as being this one-off that happened in, you know, at least the West and, you know, increasingly uh, in East Asia as well. That that's the type of stuff. If well, if you don't have high quality workers, whether they be you know because of, of relatively limited school or, or something, none of that's going to matter. So yeah, I think we agree here that this is kind of the it's the the deeper issues of how you get those wages in the first place that matters rather rather than the wages. You know that said, once you get those wages and you start getting these you know incentives to invest more in the technology, you you can get these mechanisms working. Uh, but where you get that to begin with is what really matters. That is all for us today. Thank you to Jared Rubin and Mark Kiyama for joining me today. Thanks, Dylan. It's uh, been a great pleasure. Yeah, it really has been. Great talk. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. 
Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.